If you don't mind, let's turn together to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are finishing a brief series on the family, and I felt like it would be important to help us understand the connections between our individual families, nuclear families, if you will, and the family of God. We could turn to various passages in the New Testament to explore this idea, but perhaps the most clear passage from which we can do this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, and specifically verses 14 through 16. Let me give you a bit of an analogy as we enter into this text today. When a man and a woman get married, we talk about them covenanting. We use that in a a verbal sense, an active sense. We talk about them covenanting together. When that happens, something negative occurs and something positive occurs. By negative, I don't mean that it has bad connotations. By negative, I mean something is given up. When a couple covenants together in marriage, they are giving up everyone else, in a sense. They will have a unique one-flesh relationship. This new husband will be exclusively committed to his wife, and this woman will be exclusively committed to her husband. So something negative happens. Something is taken away. But something positive happens. They get each other in ways that they have never had a relationship before. This one flesh union was designed by God to bring them intimacy and joy and relational satisfaction. But as we know from elsewhere in the Scriptures and from Paul's pen, that marriage itself is a picture of something far greater. This means that when God gave Adam and Eve the covenant of marriage, He surely was helping them find relational satisfaction, but He was doing something more. He was pointing them to a far greater reality, and that is that God has loved His people in Christ. And Christ is the bridegroom, the husband, if you will, of the church, and He has made the church His saints, the ones that He has chosen and rescued by His grace. He has made them His bride collectively. In fact, one day... Marriage between humans will pass away. When we are with Christ forever in the eternal state, we will no longer be married to one another. But the greatest marriage of all will continue for eternity. And that is why, whether it is to be taken purely, literally, or not, we will celebrate as the church, as the redeemed rescued saints of Jesus Christ with Him in what John calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our nuclear families, our relationships with our wives and with our children, help us understand in a very intimate sense what it's like to be committed to individual people exclusively. And it is the same with the church. When we come into a relationship with God through Christ, we are negatively giving things up. We are giving up worship of all other things. 
We will not follow the voice of any other leaders. We will not stake our claim on the hope that anything or anyone else has to offer. When we are joined to God through Christ, we are to be exclusively committed to Him. We are His family. We are His household. But positively, look at what we gain. We once again are united to our Creator. We once again have the hope of life, of satisfaction. We are freed from slavery to sin. And more than this, we are given deep, lasting, and special, unique relationships that can only exist coming from the hearts of those that have been renewed by Christ, those in whom the image of the Creator is being renewed day by day. And Paul, as he writes to Timothy, really is writing to the church in Ephesus and to all the churches that Timothy and the rest of the leaders under him and the rest of the apostles would grow up, would plant and nurture, and of course, all those that would come from them. We have a spiritual heritage that traces its lineage back to these very churches and to these documents that make up our New Testaments. And Paul wrote this first of his pastoral letters, pastoral epistles, to Timothy. Two of them went to Timothy, one went to Titus. So two of them were to Timothy in Ephesus and one to Titus in Crete. This church in Ephesus had problems. It had doctrinal problems and it therefore had moral problems. And Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, to instruct him, as to how they are to detect both the doctrinal and moral errors and how they are to root them out and avoid them in the future. If you'd like to look with me back in chapter 1, just really briefly to set some context. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves, verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So bad doctrine was entering into the midst of this church. And look at verse 5. The aim of our charge, that is apostleship, leadership in these churches, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So you see in these verses a link between what we believe and how we behave. In verse 18, Paul says to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith, that's doctrine, and a good conscience. That's how you live. That's your behavior. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul is very concerned that his son in the faith, Timothy, lead this church in Ephesus in such a fashion that they hold on to the tradition that the apostles have received from Christ Himself, that thereby they will not only believe what is true, 
but they will live in accordance with what they believe. Look with me at the end of the book in chapter 6. Paul says in the latter portion of verse 2, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, so he connects what he is teaching back to Jesus, and therefore he's passing this on to Timothy, who will pass it on. So you're looking at four generations now of, of commitment to the Word of God. If a person will not hold to this doctrine, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So again, we see here at the end of the letter, Paul is very concerned about the link between right belief, right doctrine, and right living, right behavior. And Paul wants this church, this church that he is responsible for, now because Timothy is there, he is more indirectly responsible, but he is, he is very concerned that this church persists in their commitment to the Word of God, and specifically the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, and thereby they will live for the glory of the God who gave that gospel, according to His standards, according to His law, reflecting how great He is in His love and His faithfulness and His purity and His righteousness. So Paul wants to make sure that this church is faithful and persists in its commitment to the truth and thereby its commitment to holy living. So that's the context in which Paul writes in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, in our text for today, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray briefly. Holy Spirit, take these brief verses and this short time that we have, and for the glory of our God and for the joy of, of this church, this expression of your larger church, help us understand what we are to believe and how we are to behave together. So glorify Jesus. May He be clear in our sight. May our faith increase. May our resolve through the Spirit increase. And I pray that we will walk away at least one more degree changed. We pray these things in faith in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the church, the larger church, and this local church is the household of God. We talked earlier as we introduced these three new families into membership here about the connection between the universal church, the larger church that exists everywhere, all the saints of God, and local churches. They are not the same thing, but they are inextricably linked. And as a local church, just like Paul wrote to a local church in Ephesus under the leadership of Timothy, 
we are to understand what it is we are to believe and how we are to live together. And according to Paul here in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16, we are the household of God, and that is a really huge deal. That means that what we believe should come from Him, and how we live together should be drawn from principles that He has revealed to us. If indeed we are the family of God, and if it's true that we have given up our allegiance to anything else, the negative concept of coming to God, and positively we get everything from Him, we are renewed to the Creator and all the blessings that flow from being part of His family, then it means that what we believe in and how we live together is is of ultra importance. This is no small thing. The truth is we live together on a weekly basis, mostly with our families, our, our wives and our children. But we make up this larger thing that we call the local church, which is part of a much larger thing we call the universal church. And though we bear out the responsibilities of being a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, at the same time we are part of something bigger, which means that we are to keep in mind always that we are the people of God joined together into a covenant community. So this text is a perfect text to explore in brief as new families have covenanted together with us as a church family today. So this church, North Point, is an individual household of God. It makes up the the larger household of God. This is an architectural metaphor. That is to say, we are the building of God. Paul says elsewhere that we are the temple of the Spirit. But this is more than just an architectural metaphor. It's also a familial, a relational metaphor. That is why the ESV renders it not just the house of God, but the household of God. This captures the idea of the original language. Architecturally, we are the place where God dwells, but we're more than just a place. We are a people. We are a family, which means that all of us as sons and daughters of God live together under His fatherhood. And all of us as brothers and sisters live together as brothers and sisters of Jesus. And all of this is held together through the spirit of adoption that has brought us back into the family of God. So we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit as one family under their care. A simple and brief way to understand this text today. In verses 14 through 15, Paul wants Timothy to understand, and therefore he wants us to understand, that the church is the dwelling place of God on earth. God dwells among His people in the larger context of His church, but specifically in this context, and thereby we see the link between the universal church and the local church. It is one thing for people out there in the world who do not follow Christ to understand some things about Christianity. This comes to bear during election cycles. It is said that evangelicals make up 20% of the electorate, and during an election cycle like this one, particularly as we're about a month away from electing a new president, God help us in our country, and I won't say more than that today. 
People wonder, who are these evangelicals? What are they like? What do they believe? It's one thing to explore the somewhat mythical beliefs of what evangelicals are supposed to be like and what it is they are to believe, but it's a much different thing to know a Christian. And Christians are to live together in particular communities, both geographically and then thereby as local churches. I get very frustrated when I listen to talk radio or to the 24-hour news cycle, which frankly I just turn off most of the time now. But whenever they try to define what Christianity is, I find that so much of what they say I frankly don't adhere to. It doesn't define me. And I hope that my neighbors, the people who live on my street, the people with whom I live in my community, I hope they don't define me by what they see on the news. I hope they can get to know me. And thereby, as they know me, if I'm believing what is true and believing what is right, and then if they know some of you, and if we, if we do that together as a local church expressing the larger church of God, we have an opportunity to show them what God is like because God dwells in us. So therefore, we are to think of our local church as sort of a, a local outpost of the kingdom. There is coming a day, according to God's Word, when when Jesus will refashion this entire planet, it will be his kingdom. It will be even more beautiful and perfect than it already is. We have a hard time fathoming what that would even be like. But there is coming a day when that will be the case, and, and quite literally, he will set up his capital, his kingdom, his new Jerusalem on this planet. We will not live ethereal, wispy, disembodied lives up in the clouds. We will live with newly resurrected, perfected bodies together as a family under the kingship of Jesus, and we will see Him as He is, and we will have perfect peace, and then the King will be here in His kingdom. But until then, the kingdom does not exist in a particular city. There's not a capital somewhere. We are more like individual embassies, if you will. When we were in Ethiopia finalizing the adoption of our sons, we had a number of, of legal things we had to work out, both on, both on the Ethiopian side of things and on the United States, the American side of things. And so we had to make several trips to our embassy. It's interesting whenever you're in a foreign country and you you feel a little bit unsafe and unsteady, like you're a little bit off kilter. It's an interesting thing to walk back into your embassy. They view it as U.S. soil. There's Marines guarding it, and there's officials in there that speak your language and, and understand your plight, and, and they're there to help you. And they did, frankly, an amazing job, despite the the ineptitude so often and failures of much of our government, we were incredibly impressed with the way that our State Department behaved and acted in the country of Ethiopia. But it was interesting because, because though we weren't on U.S. soil, literally, we were on Ethiopian soil, the ground was Ethiopia, we got to be in our country a bit. We got to be with our people, and it was an expression of American interest there in that country. We live in a hostile world. We live in a world that is not yet under the allegiance of Christ. In fact, right now in Ethiopia, the homeland of 
my two new sons, it is under great disarray. There are protests all over the place. An American was killed the other day during a protest. They're blocking roads into the capital. Political and social revolution is, is underway in Ethiopia. Thank God we got out when we did. But that's what it's like here. This is a hostile place. It's a dangerous place, especially to the people of God. But nevertheless, as small embassies, outposts of the kingdom, we are the expression of the kingship of Jesus. So that means that it matters how you live. And it means that it matters what you believe. Increasingly, as the people of God, it is passe, it seems odd to believe certain doctrinal truths, that Jesus is the exclusive and only way back to God. It is passe and odd and even socially and culturally detestable to believe what we do about certain sexual mores. We are becoming increasingly more and more odd in this culture, and yet we are still the expression of the people of God in this local church. And therefore, it matters what we believe, and it matters how we live together. And Paul wants Timothy to know that even if he can't be there with them, they are to be very, very careful in what they believe and how they behave because they represent the one true God. I think that's the idea when Paul calls him the living God. They are the assembly, the church, that's what church means. They are the assembly of the one true God. The one who spoke the world into existence. The one who holds it together by the word of his power. And though I must confess, I and most of us are weak, imperfect, and fragile. God has set us up in this hostile world as an outpost to be a pillar and buttress of truth. I won't take time to bore you with a lot of church history today, but as you look back over the now two millennia of church history, it is incredibly sad and tragic how churches which once held to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ have jettisoned it, have abandoned it, have given it up all together. Most of the major denominations of our country and the West, looking back into Europe, are now what we might call post-Christian. They have not only changed their understanding of the authority of Scripture, sexual ethics, and many other things, they don't even believe the gospel at all. And therefore, they are religious institutions, cultural gatherings, but they are, in so many senses, though beautiful on the outside, like whitewashed tombs, dead on the inside. And that doesn't make us better. It doesn't make us smarter. It should not make us feel superior. It should drive us to our knees. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2 of this epistle that we are to pray for all men everywhere. We are to pray for the 
abandonment of faith in our culture. We are to pray for our neighbors that, that they might encounter real Christians banded together in these outposts of faith and understand what real truth is and therefore how life can change. So therefore it matters. Husbands, the way you love your wife, it matters. Wives, the way you respect and submit to your husbands and raise your children, it matters. Your sexual ethics matter. The way you dispense your money, it matters. The way you use your time, it matters. It's all saying something about who we are and, of course, more importantly, who we worship. So we have to ask ourselves, as those who make up this individual outpost, this this local expression of Christ's larger body, this household of God, do we understand the privilege that we have and do we understand the responsibility that we have? Are we living in such a way that people can look at us and see that, that we belong to the one true God? So we must hold fast to what is true. It won't always be incredibly exciting. I know that. You will often walk away on a Sunday and I will not have made you laugh. You will often walk away from a small group and you may not feel like you've overwhelmingly been changed. But I've said to you before and I will say to you again that the accumulation of teaching on Sunday morning in your small groups and discipleship and women's study, and men's gatherings, and time you spend privately together, and of course, in your private worship as family and individuals, the accumulative, the cumulative effect of, of all that attention to truth will change your heart, and it will change your mind. I recognize that probably sermons that are broadcast here, individual small groups that are held together here will not change your life in an instant. That's just the truth. But the truth of the matter is that we are to stay committed to the consistent teaching of the Word of God so that cumulatively over time the Spirit will change us, convincing us in heart and in mind of the truth of God, that we will believe it, adhere to it, and thereby live for His glory. So everything you do matters. And who we are as a local church, it matters. And when we covenant together as a church We are to adhere to what is true, and we are to believe and behave truthfully. So therefore, you all play a part. If there is a weak link in the chain, the whole chain is compromised. If there is an unhealthy member of the family, the whole family is diseased, so to speak. So thereby, we understand that we all have a role to play. And so I ask you today as one who loves you dearly and prays for you. How are you walking? What are you believing? Are you feeding? Are you, are you believing and studying and, and pouring over what is true that your mind may be changed and thereby your heart and behavior? Are you attentive to the Word of God, not only when we're together corporately, but, but in your small groups? Are, are you trying to stay committed to banding together regularly Are you privately spending time with God so that your heart and your mind will progressively, over time, continue to be changed so that you will believe and behave in a way that is in keeping with being part of the family of the one true God? I I cannot overstate how grand and special a privilege it is to be part of the family of God.
So the church is the dwelling place of God on earth, verses 14 and 15. In verse 16, we find that Paul instructs Timothy that the gospel is the hope of the world. Verse 16, to read it again, Paul says to Timothy, Great indeed, that's an emphatic statement in the original language. Paul is drawing attention to what's getting ready to come. So he's kind of saying this, perk up, Timothy. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. To make this perhaps just a little bit more clear, Paul seems to be saying to Timothy, this is the center of all that we believe. This mystery of godliness, this this revelation of godliness, if you will, is the center of our faith. And what is the center of our faith? Paul is sort of boiling it down and he's drawing Timothy's attention to the central feature of the faith of the church of God, the household of God. Here's what it is. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He became a real man, the second Adam. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The person and work of Jesus Christ, or if you will, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central feature of our faith. Paul elsewhere says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. This expression in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 was probably a creed or perhaps even a hymn that the churches of God here in the first century sang together. It's sort of poetic in its form. Timothy may well have been familiar with this, and Paul is drawing his attention back to this. This was an early confession, perhaps, of the church. Jesus became the second Adam. To obey all the laws that Adam failed to obey, and all the progeny, all the offspring of Adam failed to obey. Someone had to come keep the laws. And so Jesus became a real man. But he was vindicated by the Spirit. We know at Jesus' baptism that God opens the heavens and says that this Jesus is his Son, and he is well pleased with him. And he sends the Spirit down to to express that this beginning of Jesus' public ministry will be under the inspiration of God himself. He is seen by angels, that is, He was worshipped before the foundation of the world by angels and was ministered to by angels during his earthly ministry. And even now, as he is back in the eternal glory with the Father, he is worshipped by those same angels. He is proclaimed among the nations. Therefore, this gospel that Jesus, the Son of Man and Son of God, who kept all of God's laws and then died the death that we deserved, offers us His righteousness. Righteously, He kept all of God's laws. He died the death that that we unrighteously deserve. And therefore, because He actively obeyed God both in His life and through His death, now as the risen Lord, we proclaim His good news. That all humans everywhere are unrighteous, but they are in desperate need of righteousness. And we proclaim this to the nations that they might understand and believe that though they have none, they may receive righteousness from the Son of God. 
We have believed on Him in the world, and we call others to do the same. And and even now, He is with the Father in glory, and one day will return in glory. This is the central feature of what we believe. We believe a lot of things. There's 66 books in our Bibles, and therein are contained many, many things we should do, and many, many things that we shouldn't. But this is the central feature of our faith. The gospel is the hope of the world. And therefore, we should, first of all, embrace it. We cannot give up on it. Secondly, we should reflect its implications. If Jesus loved us in such a fashion that He sacrificed Himself for us to bring us life, we are to live the same way with the world around us, especially in the household of God. If Jesus is the human embodiment of forgiveness and forbearance, we, as His newly made image bearers, as His followers, as those who make up this family, we are to live together in the same way. If Jesus forgives, we, as a church family, are to forgive. If Jesus bears with us, though we are unfaithful, we are to bear with one another. If Jesus sacrificed for the poor, we are to sacrifice for the poor, both within and without. Jesus, through His teaching and through His life, provides us truth upon which we can reflect and reflect the implications to one another. So this church, as the family of God, is to reflect to each other and to the world around us what it looks like to be different. Whereas before we were controlled by the flesh under the power of sin, now controlled by the Spirit and freed from sin's power, we can live for the glory of God, reflecting His love, His kindness, His grace, His faithfulness, His righteousness, To put it very simply, we say no to sin because we can, and we say yes to holiness because we can. We are being renewed to the original design as the family of God, and therefore, once again, all of us are to live with these realities. So we are to embrace the gospel. We are to believe it and understand it. We are to explore it for the rest of our lives, and one way or another, We should always be teasing out the implications of the gospel every time we get together and hear the Word of God. And then once that is done because of the influence of the Spirit, we get to reflect its implications. And thirdly and lastly for today, we are to proclaim its message. Are we doing that? I ask you individually. Sure, we are supporting missionaries around the world that are doing this. But are we serious about this? Through the expenditure, through the use of your resources, are you serious about the proclamation of the message of the gospel? After all, it was was the only hope you had, and it's the only hope the world has. So use your money to make the gospel known. Give of your money to this church that we might make the gospel known here in this place. And we have a long way to go in that regard. We will continue to use it globally for the expression of the gospel, but not just your money, your time. Are you willing to sacrifice your time when we have 
outreach opportunities, mission trips? Are you willing and able to give up some of your busy time at home to have unbelievers into your home? Are you willing to go through awkward conversations and express the good news of Jesus to those who are lost in sin and headed to hell? Are you willing to to bring people to this place to meet the rest of the family, this, this embassy of Jesus, if you will, that they might understand what real love looks like? Do you know what? We live in the middle, upper middle class suburbs, most of us, and there's not immediately obvious needs for most. Houses, for the most part, aren't falling apart. Most people are making their mortgages. Most people have not missed a meal in their recent memory. Most people drive decent cars and wear decent clothes and take nice vacations, and their kids are in expensive sports and so on and so on. Most of us live in that kind of context, but you know what? Most people are not happy. Most people don't know what love is. Most people don't know what faithfulness is. Most people are trapped in sin, and they're miserable. Will you take the time to get to know those people, to show them what a follower of Jesus, a member of the household of God looks like, and then will you bring them around the rest of the family so they can see it in action, so they can see forgiveness in action and faithfulness and righteousness and holiness and kindness and compassion and sacrifice? You see, we are a local outpost, an embassy for Jesus. We have the responsibility to understand that we are the household of God and the gospel is the only hope the world has. So by his grace, may we embrace it. May we reflect its implications and may we proclaim its message. It is a privilege to be banded together with you in this local outpost of the household of God. It is a privilege. I want you to see it that way as well. But all of us probably, after hearing this word of God, are to explore and to examine our hearts and see the ways that this gracious gift of God should be changing us. So I call you to that now. May you, through introspection under the influence of the Spirit, consider how you are to change for the glory of God, for our mutual joy, and for the good of the world who desperately needs Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now take this truth and drive it down into our hearts through your Spirit. Please may it not find dry ground. May it not, may it not go rootless, but, but may you nurture it and grow it up. May you water and feed it so that we may be changed one more degree. We are grateful collectively that we get to be part of your family. We are grateful for this family. And imperfect though it is, it is the one you've called us to. So may we be committed to it. May may we give to it. May May we sacrifice for it. May we love it. May we forgive it. May we forbear with it. And as you strengthen us, both in spirit and in numbers, May we reach this community and and the globe beyond us. Jesus is worthy to receive the reward for his sufferings. And that is more disciples being made for his glory. And we have the responsibility and privilege of being part of that. So help us, we pray. Change each one of us for your glory and for our joy. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.